Jesus. Lord, help us in these next moments together to just savor you and find joy there. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, Eric Honecker was the oppressive leader of the communist East German regime in the 1970s and 80s. And and listen, if you're young and don't know the full history of communism, amongst other things, it was a systematic attempt to bring atheism into a country. And as a result, every communist communist regime ends up vilifying, persecuting, many times imprisoning, many times even killing religious people, especially Christians. Communism is always hard on Christianity. In East Germany in particular, this is common for other communist countries, speech was restricted, movement was restricted, association was restricted, uh, those who protested were treated harshly, people couldn't leave the country, Families were divided for decades. Religious liberty was denied. Many were killed trying to sneak out of the country. There's an old adage that uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's absolutely true of every communist regime that I've ever read of. And it was true uh, of East Germany. This leader, Eric Honecker, he clung to power uh, for, for decades. And as a result, he personally became very wealthy. He would sit on different leadership boards of, of different things in the country. Of course, they would invite him in order to, to sway him. And then he was enriched uh, in that way. And in the end, he was just a hated figure in that country. His wife was also a hated figure. Margot was, uh, she ran the educational system uh, for that church, or uh, for that country for over 25 years. Amongst other things, under her leadership, if a family uh, would try to flee to the West and they were caught, she would take away their, their children. She would restrict things uh, in schools that, that Christian kids couldn't participate in certain things. She, she, uh, under her leadership, Christian children were not able to get, attend the colleges of the country. Again, these, uh, this couple was hated at the end of their time. Margaret uh, Thatcher had a famous saying in those years that the problem with communism and socialism is you eventually run out of other people's money. That was kind of the downfall of the whole thing. Is they were so oppressive, the economy wasn't growing, and in the end, you know the story, that the Berlin Wall eventually falls. Actually, keep this was my father's, but I keep a little uh, collection of, of rocks from the Berlin Wall just to, as a reminder of the lessons from that period. Listen, I bring this up because... In the end, when the Honekers were out of power, they became very vulnerable in that society. They were very hated by a lot of people. And literally, they, they became homeless. What would you do if a couple like that, maybe uh, they oversaw a regime that, that harmed your children in their school or, or kept your children from going to college or, or restricted you in some way? Maybe you wanted to go to the West, but because of them, you were not able to go to the West with your family. How would you treat them if they sat in our church? How do we treat people that are different than us? How do we treat people inside the church and, and outside the church? How do we treat people who've sinned against us? Well, today we're finishing, our, our, we're in the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. And if you're new with us, we actually started uh, this study in, in 2019, which feels like about a decade ago. Pre-COVID, uh, we started our study of Hebrews. And the reason why uh, we've gone slowly through this study is there's a depth and a profoundness to this book. 
it also kind of has some themes that it kind of circles around. So it can be kind of repetitive. But the gist of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. And the reason why he makes this point over and over and over again that Jesus is better is because the problem they were dealing with is that people were tempted to fall away. People around Jesus fell away. People in this first century church fell away. People today fall away from the faith. And the solution to that is, is to believe that Jesus is better. Whatever is tempting you to fall away, Jesus is better than that thing. And that's the point that he makes over and over and over again, that Jesus is better, therefore draw near to him. Now, one way to read the book of Hebrews is to kind of read it like a sermon. Now, it was certainly a letter, and it was passed around to different churches. And it's written in kind of a format like the other epistles in the New Testament, but, but it was also likely a sermon, and I think a good sermon has this, that it starts with the indicative and then it gets to the imperative. What I mean by that is that it starts with these truths, these theological gospel truths. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priest. He's better. That's the truth. And then it gets to the imperative. Therefore, live this way. Starting in Hebrews 10, there's a shift from the indicative to the imperative. And that's where we are today. We're at this point of him giving us really plain, clear, direct teachings on what we're supposed to do now that we know that Jesus is better. He's going to give us six, and we're just going to walk through them. These six different ones, and in some ways they're connected. I think in some ways maybe they're not. I think the first one is overarching. But he gives us these six different imperatives on what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to live differently, how our lives are to be transformed based upon the fact that Jesus is better. The first one is, because Jesus is better, love. Look at Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. Now, going back to Jesus is better. If you go all the way back to the first chapter of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After that verse, the author makes the point that Jesus is better than the angels. That's kind of where he starts with making this argument that Jesus is better. And now here at the end, based upon all those truths, he's saying because Jesus is better, let brotherly love continue. Again, I think this is kind of an overarching command out of all the five that follow is that we're to love one another. Now, specifically, he says brotherly love. There's kind of a a family love that he's talking about here. And he's saying, let it continue. So it was happening in their midst, and he was saying, let it continue. Now, this is a reminder to say, when you're converted, you're converted individually. Like, because you're you know, dad was a deacon, or mom taught Sunday school, or your uncle was a pastor, maybe you were baptized as a kid, that doesn't mean you've got a golden ticket into heaven. Your conversion is individual. You're converted as an individual, and you're called to repent and believe as an individual. However, when you're converted, you're converted to a family. This idea that you can be a faithful Christian and not really be part of a church, that's a very unbiblical idea. You see, you're called to love one another. Unless you know people and are walking with people, you can't do that. Your life is to be marked by brotherly love. That's why he calls us here to to continue in brotherly love, that you're part of a family now. But never forget that 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 love is based upon the love that God has for you. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So God loved you, died on the cross for you, 
paid for your sins, converted you, and now he calls you to love other people. Jesus is the model for this type of love, right? Like if you think about it, how did Jesus love us? These categories are helpful for me, but Jesus loved with his head, with his heart, and with his hands. Like he loved us convictionally. He, he loved us categorically. His love for us is based upon all these covenant promises that God makes for us. He loves us with that type of uh, covenant commitment to us. He has a steadfast love for us. So in a sense, he loves us with his head categorically. But also when you read about Jesus in the New Testament, he loves us emotionally, right? With his heart. When his friend dies, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Jesus loves you emotionally. He's moved passionately, emotionally, even for you. He loves you that way. But also, he loves ultimately with his hands. So he moves from the theology textbook to to the worship song sheet, and then ultimately to the scars on his hands on the cross. That's the way he loves you, and that's the way we're to love other people. Is there evidence that you have convictional love for the people in this room? Is there evidence that, that you have heartfelt feelings and love for the people in your life? Is there evidence that, you, that you've actually loved people with your hands, doing things for them, serving for them? I've heard it said that biblical love is kind of like exercise. It can't be theoretical. Are you with me? The second one, because Jesus is better, be hospitable. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Going back to this case for Jesus being better, Hebrews 2.14 says that through his death, Jesus destroyed the power of death. Isn't that amazing? Jesus was our propitiation, meaning he satisfied the wrath of God so that God is no longer wrathful on you if you believe in his work on the cross. That's glorious. Now, what the author does in Hebrews 2 is he then compares that to Moses. He says, listen, Moses is great, but Moses is a model for us, but Moses hasn't accomplished anything like that. Jesus is better. Because Jesus is better, be hospitable. And listen, hospitality can be easily forgotten, right? Like he says, do not neglect to show hospitality. It it can be easily forgotten. But this is, I think, the greatest way that we can have evidence for for loving other people. Brotherly love is marked by hospitality. Hospitality, I think, is best defined as love for strangers. Helping people in practical ways, offering to help them, offering to care for them, that's what hospitality is all about. Hebrews 13.2, it teaches that that some of those people that that you come across and and that uh, you have that moment, should I help them, should I not? He says that, yeah, some of those were actually angels that were a test for you. I think that's actually pretty terrifying. But, but that demonstrates the weight that this command has. God cares so much that you show hospitality that he's going to bring tests in your life to see if you're faithful to this. In, in the ancient times in the Middle East, like it is today, friendship is closely connected to hospitality. Like that's evidence of if you're a good friend to people, do you demonstrate hospitality towards them? Uh, I, I grew up in a mega church, and it was a beautiful building. We, we had a lot of space for classes and small groups and Sunday school classes and youth group. And, and when we came to start Redeemer, we started in our home and then in a school. 
and, and it took a lot of people just showing hospitality, opening up their homes, and, and sharing food with one another, and, and all those things to make this church happen. This, this church has a great history of hospitality. Some of you have wonderful gifts of hospitality, and, and this is essential to faithfully following the Lord is being hospitable, taking people to lunch, you know, uh, loving on people in practical ways when they're hurting. Hospitality is one of the most underrated spiritual gifts, and, and it's a means of brotherly love. As a result, we're reminded not to neglect, neglect it. Okay, the third one. Because Jesus is better, remember the imprisoned and the mistreated. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So because Jesus is better, we're to continue in our brotherly love. Because Jesus is better, we're not to neglect being hospitable. And now, because Jesus is better, we're not to forget the, the, those imprisoned and those who are mistreated. And I think what he does here is make a close connection between the two. You see, we need to remember them because they're easily forgotten. There's so many people around us. There's so many people in our society that are easily forgotten, beginning with those who are in prison. You see, when somebody's not right in front of us, we, we just forget about them, right? Those who are on the edges of society, who are marginalized in some way, it's easy to forget them. And this verse reminds us to remember them. Listen, Christians have, have a long history of caring for those who are in prison. But like if you just think about the Bible itself, like think about the Gospels. You remember John the Baptist being imprisoned and how people came and, and tried to care for him. In, in Acts, we read about all these different Christians who are imprisoned and then people were ministering to them. Human history is filled with this complex reality that most maybe are, are in prison for just reasons, but many are not. Many are, are falsely accused. Think of a biblical example, Joseph. Joseph was falsely accused and that's why he was in prison. Many are, are, are there maybe because they broke some sort of strict interpretation of the law, but then they're experiencing this unfair punishment. Like, think Paul. Like, should Paul really have been in, in prison and killed at the end of his life? Maybe there was some sort of strict interpretation of a law that he broke, but, but that was total unfair treatment of him, right? Listen, I think on balance, we, we have a very just justice system on balance, there's, there's always injustices in our system. And it's not just an American problem. It's a human problem. That Many have always been mistreated and have been falsely imprisoned. Many in our, our own day, they can't afford adequate defense. And thus they, they plea out on a deal even, even though they're innocent. And they end up uh, serving prison time that they shouldn't be serving. We have a long history of African Americans and different minorities in our country who have been mistreated by our justice system. We have, we have a history of seeing this connection between those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. However, the church is called to remember them. What does it look like to remember those who are in prison? Years ago, I uh, was on a mission trip with a group of pastors to Russia. And kind of our, our purpose of the trip is that we were training other pastors. And so we were essentially providing like a, like a free seminary education to these pastors who couldn't afford it. So we went to this one large city and they would come from all these smaller communities and we would teach for a week. And one of the really fascinating things was is as we got to know them, 
Uh, most of the men in that room had been converted while they were in prison. In fact, one of the guys that I got closest with and just loved him, loved his story. He was the best church planter in that city. God was using him in, in amazing ways. He would limp into our study every week. Here's the story that he told. He said that uh, he had been imprisoned and he, would, he was a thief and uh, was rightly uh, in prison. He was a really good leader, though. And so he organized, literally this dude, organized the entire jail on a, on a big, massive riot so that he could sneak out of jail. <laughs> Pretty impressive. As he's climbing over the wall, he's shot in the back of his leg. Now, if you think Russian prison, this is a rough place, okay? So shot in the back of the leg, falls back into prison, and they just kind of throw him into the infirmary and just let him die. They assume he's going to die. He thinks he's going to die. And, and they just leave him in there and don't provide good care for him. The people who did provide good care for him, week in and week out, th this little group of lay people from the local Russian Baptist church, every week they would go into this prison, pray for prisoners, care for them, bring them food, bring them messages from their families. For this man, they would go into the infirmary, they would change his bandages, they would love him, they'd provide him food, they would encourage him, they would pray for him, they would share the gospel with him, and they're laying what he thought was on his deathbed, he was converted to Christ. Now, as he got better and they eventually let him out, he became one of the best church planters in Russia. Listen, that's what I think it looks like to care for the marginalized, care for the mistreated, to remember those who are in prison and in, in, in the downtrodden. Brothers and sisters, we're called to remember the marginalized, remember the imprisoned, remember the mistreated. Okay, number four. Because Jesus is better, honor marriage. Let me read verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among you, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Going back to Jesus is better. In Hebrews 6, 19 and 20, we read, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. That's his case for Jesus being a better priest. He's a better priest than any of the other priests. His ways are better than any other ways that the world has to offer. And as a result, Jesus calls us to honor marriage. Christians are to honor marriage. Christians have always been called to honor marriage. This is one of those foundational Christian ethics that Christians in every society, throughout the history of the church, in every country, have had to honor. Christians have always been called to honor marriage. And listen, if you know the history of the church and in different countries, this has looked differently in different places at different times. Traditionally, this has been that there have been systems in different countries and in different times where women have been oppressed in some way as a result of, of, of rules and structures in that society. And as Christians have come in and as the gospel has flourished, it has helped those who have been oppressed. So Christians have gone in and ended polygamy, which is typically something that was oppressive to women. Christian missionaries have gone in and ended things like female circumcision and human trafficking and prostitution. We have this long history of trying to honor marriage and then bringing flourishing to that society. I know it's a mixed history. Christians are like, like all of us in this room. We're, we're uh, failed and flawed. But there's a strong history of Christians honoring marriage and making things better in a society. However, 
Those good works are connected with a deep biblical teaching. You can't separate out the teaching from the good works. You can't say, well, we should end this. We should end human trafficking. Why? I don't know. Maybe it's bad. Christianity always has this deep grounding, this deep teaching on why we honor marriage. You can't have the work without the teaching. And hear me, the reason why I camp out on that is, is that Christians in every age have been unpopular because of those teachings. No matter where you go in the history of the church, you go to Africa, you go to India, uh, you go to Europe, you go to America, anywhere, when Christians try to honor marriage according to what the Bible teaches, they're always unpopular for it. And that's what marks our day. And listen, this honor, honoring marriage, I think it begins with our own marriages. If you want to honor marriage, it's easy to tweet, but are you honoring your own marriage? And what he says here, the word that he uses here, is particularly keeping the marriage bed undefiled. This is the charge for Christians, is to keep the marriage bed undefiled. This is a charge for Christians to not only not commit the sin of adultery, but also to battle against lust. It means that we are to, uh, uh, to keep the marriage bed about loving your spouse and growing a family. That means we have to capture our thoughts, fight the fight of faith in order to keep the marriage bed undefiled. The reason he gives here for why you're to keep the marriage bed undefiled is that God will judge you otherwise. Feel the weight of that. What he's saying here is, is that, friends, if you're toying with lust, you're going to answer for it. Friend, if you're diminishing the biblical ethic on marriage or on sexuality, maybe to desire your own fleshly desires, there's a wrathful lion waiting someday. There's a warning to this passage. There's, there's a weight to this and a warning. But listen, honoring marriage, I think this is the great test of faith in our age. Christians have always been unpopular for this. No one likes to be told what they can't do. Listen, we're in a day where this is the great test of your faith. Are you going to honor marriage? But are you going to do it beginning with your own marriage? Are you going to honor uh, marriage in your own marriage? You see, if we don't have good, healthy marriages, it hurts our case for the Bible's teachings on marriage. Are you with me? But listen, it can't stop there. We also need to honor marriage by thoughtfully understanding the Christian ethic. What does the Bible teach on these issues? We need to do the work to truly understand it. And, and then we are to proclaim it. We're to explain the teachings of the Bible. We're to teach it. We're to counsel people on it. But listen, we're to do it with graciousness and kindness. But we're also to do it with conviction and with clarity. The Bible calls us to honor marriage. Because Jesus is better, honor marriage. Well, number five, because Jesus is better, be content. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is just old man observations of the world, okay? Take it or leave it. I think that lack of ambition is not godly. And I think we have young people struggling with a lack of ambition, and I don't think that that's godly. Okay, clocking in, clocking out, providing no energy, no creativity to what the work that you've been given. I don't think that that's godly. Okay, however, ambition is kind of like fire. (laughs) 
Extre- you want to avoid the stre- extremes on both ends. Lack of ambition, I think, can be sinful. Overly ambitious can be sinful as well. The overly ambitious person is, tends to be marked by a love of money. Being overly focused on money can be, is sinful. Like any sinful love or any idolatry, love of money is a lie. Love of money says, listen, if you have more money, you have these more things, then you'll be happy, then you'll be free. But that's a lie. He says that the love of money is actually bondage. Now, this might sound strange to some, but I've seen people who have a lot of money, as well as people who don't have a lot of money, struggle with this sin. You might be thinking, well, I don't have a lot of money, so I'm not going to struggle with the love of money. I've seen it on both ends. However, I've also seen people with a lot of money and the people with a very little bit of money not struggle with the love of money. And the way that you can tell is how generous they are. When people are generous, that's a mark that they're not struggling with the love of money. So generosity is the sign that someone is free from the love of money. But the counter here that he gives, love of money, but rather be content. Be satisfied with what the Lord has given you. Are you satisfied with the pathway that he's put you on in life? Or is there always wanting more? Is always wanting something different? Now listen, as Americans, we struggle with this because... If you've traveled around the world anywhere, you know that Americans just have wealth that other people in the world don't have. So this, this struggle with contentment is unique for us. But no matter if you have a lot of money or if you only have a little bit of money, are you content in the Lord? And further, are you generous with what you have? The, the way to battle for contentment is to remember that he will never leave you and never forsake you is what he says here. And listen, that's that's been God's promise since, you know, the Israelites are going into the promised land with Joshua. God will never leave you and never forsake you. That's his covenant promise to you as being part of his people. And that's his solution when you're struggling with the love of money. Typically, when I'm struggling with the love of money, I'm worried about the future, right? The answer to that is he would never leave you or forsake you. Every time you worry about the future and you want to cling to something too tight and not be generous... God's with you. He's going to be with you. He's going to be for you. And that's how we overcome the sinful love of money. You see, money will leave us and forsake us, but Jesus is better, and he never will. Therefore, joyously savor Jesus. Find your satisfaction there. He can satisfy you more than a a billion or a trillion dollars. My daughter was a preschooler. She made up a category of a billion dollars. I don't know how big that is, but that's big. Jesus is better than a billion dollars. All right, finally, believe Jesus is better in order to proclaim the gospel. This is a quotation of Psalm 118.6, but he says in verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The point he's trying to make here is he's giving us all these admonitions, love, Honor marriage, be content, care for the mistreated and the imprisoned. He gives you all these admonitions, and then he concludes with, so that you can say something. Live this way. Live faithfully according to his word, so that when you're radically transformed by it, and when you're radically different from the world, you can credibly say something. You've got something different to say. Christians are to proclaim the gospel. 
So with our mouths, we are to confidently preach that God is our helper. With, with our words, we're to tell people that because God is our helper, we're not fearful. Christians aren't to be fearful. Why? Because God is our helper. And we're to tell people why we're not fearful. Not only are we not to be fearful, but we're to tell people why. Using our voice, we're to confess that God is our helper. And we're not to cower in fear with other people because we don't ultimately care what they might do to us. That's not our concern. Do your worst because I know that glory that's on the other side of it. Amen? Christians live radically different. Faithfulness leads to confidence, doesn't it? Living this way leads to confidence, a confidence in the gospel. And when you live that way, it gives you gospel credibility to those around you. Faithfulness leads to clearly, incredibly telling the world that Jesus is better than anything in this world. Amen? When you've lived according to this and you've seen it, like when you've really seen that Jesus is better than money, like, like, you, like when you know that Jesus will help you in these profound, eternal, soul-satisfying ways that a million dollars can never touch, doesn't that give you credibility when you say it? Like when you know that Jesus is better than popularity, better than the mob, better than the, the world, better than the cool kids' opinions of you, better than your besties' opinion of you. When you know Jesus is better than that, isn't that a glorious message? Don't live in fear because Jesus is your helper and then go tell everyone about it. Listen, we know about the glorious Jesus that is explained in this book of Hebrews. We know that he's better than anything that this world has to offer. He's better. And as a result, we have these six takeaways of how we're now supposed to live. We're to live according to him being better. Friend, look at your bulletin. Look, look at that list. As you look at that list, which command is most convicting to you today? Like out of those six things, which one just kind of stings right now? Like, is, is there evidence in your life that Jesus is better? Is there evidence in your relationships? Is there evidence in how you treat the mistreated? Is there evidence in your wallet? Is there evidence in your voice? Do you really believe the good news that Jesus is better? That's the good news of where he lands. So that we can say he's, that he's better because he is our helper. Do you really believe he's your helper? Now listen, if you're a Christian and you've been converted, you know that categorically he's helped you by saving you. He's the one that got up on the cross. He's the propitiation for your sins. He's the one that, that went into the, the inner sanctuaries of the temple. He's the one that accomplished all these things for you. He was the lamb that was slain. He saved you. That's how he helped you. But friends, the good news gets even better because as you look at that list, as you look at that list, like I look at that list, and I say, man, I'm off here. I'm way off here. As you look at that list, he is still your helper. He's still there with you and for you. Not only does he help you in that he saves you, he helps you in that he sanctifies you. Listen, this letter was written because Christians struggle with these six things. So if there's some of these that you struggle with, welcome to the club. But the good news is, is that you have a helper. 
You have one to cry out to today. I'm not loving. I'm not content. Help me. Friend, turn to him as your help today. Whatever you're struggling with on this list, be transformed once again by the gospel. Preach the gospel again to yourself. Your helper is there to help you. Going back to Eric and Margot Honecker, how do you think they should have been treated? Like, what if they wandered into our church? How would we have treated them? When they were ousted from power in East Germany, they, they were marked people, okay? And, and they were in this, essentially the presidential palace, and, and it came out that he had been hiding this, but he was struggling with cancer. So after the fall of everything, he kind of goes in for cancer treatment. When they get out of the hospital, they're literally homeless. Like, they have nowhere to go, totally vulnerable. The whole country wishes they were dead. In March uh, of 1990, two missionaries wrote this letter. I just want to read a portion. This, this is amazing to me. They wrote, Last week, the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker, uh, was released from the hospital where he had been undergoing treatment for cancer. There's probably no single person in all of East Germany that is more despised and hated than he. He's been stripped of all his offices, and even his own communist party has kicked him out. He was booted out of the villa that he was living in. The new government refused to provide him and his wife accommodation. They stood, in essence, homeless on the street. It was Christians who stepped in. Pastor Yui Holmer who is in charge of a Christian help center north of Berlin, was asked by church leaders if he would be willing to take them in. Pastor Homer and his family decided that it would be wrong to give away a room in the center that would be used for needy people. Or it was also wrong for an apartment uh, that, uh, to give them an apartment that they needed for their staff. Instead, they took the former dictator and his wife into their own home. It must have been a strange scene when the old couple arrived. The former absolute ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. Pretty glorious, isn't it? You know how you live that way? It begins with believing Jesus is better. He's better than politics. Jesus is better than grudges. Jesus is better than security. Jesus is better than approval. If Jesus is better... And love, be hospitable, remember the imprisoned and mistreated, honor marriage, and be content. Live so radically different, trusting in the Lord, believing that he's truly better, that you then have credibility to preach, he is my helper. Preach, he is my helper. Don't fear anyone or anything. And when you fail, turn back to that helper. He's still there to help you as his covenant promises dictate. He loves you with his head. He loves you with his heart. He loves you with his hands. Turn to him as your helper and let Jesus love you again. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this reminder and I thank you for that old pastor and his wife and his children. They had a big gaggle of kids and those children were not able to go to college because of what that couple had done to them and done to other Christians in that country. Those children were vilified and persecuted in their schools because of what that couple had done to them. 
However, they still love them. They still open their home to them. May we be a people that love that way. May we believe that Jesus is better to the degree of loving and living differently. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.